Hey, everybody. We're taking a short production break over the holidays, but wanted to leave you with some bonus episodes before we come back with season two of Extra Spicy. Yeah, we 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 need time for ourselves too. We got we got we got stuff going on. We don't just make podcasts all day. We got butts to scratch, you know. I got a lot of butt scratching to do during this pandemic. <laughs> but in order to keep things a little interesting, we thought it would be fun to take turns over the course of these few episodes with our favorite things that we've eaten this year. We're sharing. It's going to be great. Yeah, what's what's been good? What's been wild what's been tasty what's been bad so the most surprising thing that i would never have been able to predict in 2019 was that i would be eating lots of beans this year (laughs) so many beans like bags of beans all kinds of beans heirloom beans mass production beans you know boring beans fancy beans i had them all Look at Soleil over here working for working for Big Bean all of a sudden, getting them big bean checks. <laughs> I know. Beans are so pricey and luxurious and expensive, right? So <laughs> I am just drowning in merch and bribes. Beans are so hot right now. I mean, they kind of are. I'm in the bean club with Rancho Gordo. I get my quarterly shipments of beans and recipes and a lot of beans I've never heard of, which is very exciting. I just didn't know there was a whole world out there. Maybe this is an endorsement of Rancho Gordo now. And you know what? That's just going to be fine. I got to get on this bean train, man. I've been, I've been slacking. I've been slacking. It's been one of the hottest commodities of this pandemic, though. So yeah. I don't know if they're going to let any <laughs> yeah. anybody in. You had to be there at the ground floor. And now people are like talking to their friends being like, yeah, that's uh, that's Mike. I put him on beans. He didn't know much about beans before this. You know, I, I, I hipped him to the game. I mean, beans are kind of like Bitcoin right now. (laughs) That's something I never thought I would hear in 2020. All right. With all of that uh, bean talk out of the way. Hello, people. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. In today's episode, you'll hear our interview with Danny Lavery, a writer, author, advice columnist that we talked to for our first episode of the show. Writing about food is... I think it's it's sort of like a way of trying to to deal with terror, and it's hard to write about terror. This is going to be the full-length interview, and, you know, Danny's episode was a fan favorite, and we wanted to provide as much content as possible because, I mean, there's so much that he has to say about potatoes that I think is really important to hear. But before we get into this week's episode, we'd love to hear from you, the listener, uh, if you've been liking what we've been making, what we've been putting out, all the nonsense we've been talking about, please, please, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, we really would like them to be positive reviews, but we'll take whatever you have to say. We're not picky. You can write in any comments or suggestions on what you'd like to hear in season two or whatever you want. It's you. Do you. Do whatever you want. And if your note is extra, extra good, we might even share it in a segment during season two. You never know. All right. Now let's get back to the show. So I was just on Danny's podcast where he talks about, you know, he gives advice to people who write in. And um, coincidentally, a bunch of the questions were about food. That was a delight. We had really intense questions and I really, really enjoyed uh, getting to answer them together. And I wanted to ask, like, why, you know, we got, I think, what was it, two two questions about food? At least, I yeah. think. 
is that a frequent kind of flyer in your advice column? I think it, it definitely is. It's, it's a classic staple of mm-hmm. advice columns for a reason. And then I think there has probably been an uptick since a lot of the stay-at-home um, shelter-in-place orders went out back in March because many, many, many more people are cooking from home way more often than they were a couple of months ago. And the dinner table seems to be a classic setting for melodrama. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. I would absolutely agree. I would I would not try to fight you on that one. So is that the place where, you know, there's so much, I think, emotional and sentimental value put on the dinner table? Like, is that how you see it as well? Or maybe not? Probably. And I think also, you know, if people have more than two members of their household, <laughs> you know, the more people you have, the more likely you are to sit at the table. Like, when there's two of you, you're like, we could eat in bed just as easily. <laughs> and then we're eating in bed and that's fantastic. But when you have like, you know, a family of six or something, it's it's not going to work out that way. What what makes it so easy for that to be the site of all this conflict and all this angst and all this pain and, you know, also a lot of good things? Um, what are some, some commonalities that you see in like questions and concerns about that? Well, you know, I think in an advice column, just sort of given the like historical audience and this sort of question tends to be around like the interests and the problems that, that that come with like being middle class women. That's not to say that those are the only people who read or write in to those columns, not by a long shot, but like a, for, for like a lot of at least the 20th century movement, that's kind of where it's been at. And that's where like most of the anxieties and problems are located. So that's part of why I think lots of advice columns will get tons and tons of questions about like my husband and I can't agree about unloading the dishwasher or hiring a house cleaner and not a ton of questions from other perspectives. So like with all that said, I, I think the, the dinner table is kind of a classic site of conflict for that sort of relationship because that's often where the ideas of egalitarianism for that type of couple start to break down if they do break down. Mm, yeah. I mean, that is sort of where the truth kind of comes out, right? Not out of a well, but out of the, what's a good analogy? The gravy boat? No, out of the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, I think especially because it's something that you have to do at least a couple of times a day. And yet, usually if you're doing it at home, you're not getting paid for it. So there's that kind of push and pull between. It has to happen constantly. Um, and also, oftentimes, there's this sense of like, I don't want to hear too much about it. You know, I don't want to think too much about what goes into this. <laughs> wow, that seems like such a great microcosm of like my entire life right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, just writing about food and having a very significant portion of people like not care about the process or kind of the labor of it. So I really relate to the questions you get about where, where like the making of food ends up being kind of a drudgery, um, right. not through the fault of the person doing it, but just the reception of it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I'm just thinking of like ways that that extends outwards, like the ways in which like wait staff are being put in these impossible situations and just kind of like again like on a bigger scale this idea of like I don't want to think too much about the risks the person bringing the food to the table might be running. Mm-hmm. Yeah no it's it's also kind of like the the whole idea of right of knowing how the sausage gets made which is one of my favorite types of my, my favorite idiom probably because it's simultaneously gross but also really fascinating to me personally um, and you know we hear about the undocumented workers who are infected with COVID-19 who work at our slaughterhouses, right? And um, just all of the the stuff that happens behind the scenes so we can eat something that is like 
tasty to us. It's and having to like reconcile those two worlds, at least that are artificially separated, is kind of like full time work. You know, you have to do it constantly because people are so eager to ignore it. Um, which is why I think the dinner table is like the site of, it's like where you get your thousand paper cuts. I think in a bad relationship. Yeah. Oh man. But I also wanted to talk about um, your food writing because, in addition to being an advice columnist, I think that you are a fantastic part-time food writer. I love <laughs> everything you have to say about food, and you're not like a traditional one. You don't write about recipes necessarily or restaurant reviews, but other things. I think part of that is because when I do food writing, it's almost always on my newsletter, so I never have to pitch it. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's always just like, what do I feel like writing about food right now? Um, which is like a couple of times a year. And um, sometimes I mostly just want to write about like certain emotional states or fixations that I can launch myself into around food. Like, you know, I have this kind of like almost manic sort of like riff on how I feel when I think about a bean. <laughs> how do you feel when you think about a bean, Danny? I feel like a very simple farmer in the south of France who's just like, <laughs> I have my one hat and my very simple life. And I eat my one bean and it's so good for me. And, you know, you in the big glimmering cities with your many things and your sweetmeats, you have no bean. But I am a simple man of the soil. Please, je suis my campagne. <laughs> I don't know how to say <laughs> the French accent, but I think that was Italian. You are like the, the, the image of the two kind of like um, dirt speckled hands holding like a, two palmfuls of dried beans. Yeah. And that, that whole like fantasy of like uh, simplicity and Frenchness that like I can get as swept up into just as easily as the next person. <laughs> yeah, no, the thing I really love about your writing, too, is you're very much fixated on the the image of food and the rhetoric of food. You know, the things that we say about it and the things we associate with it, um, how we talk about it more so than even like the object itself, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the states that we get ourselves into around food are fascinating. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like your 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 whole thing on your newsletter, you ran a story or I don't know, like I love your like kind of listy essays. And this one was about what we say about beans also on the bean track. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like a year later. <laughs> it was almost a year to the day, actually. Like once a year I read about beans. <laughs> You got to fill your quota somehow. Yeah, I think the I think the one that you're referring to is the possibly explicable things people sometimes say about cooking beans. So I started with like eight or nine different forms of hedging as well. I think food is one site, especially as someone who has to write about it constantly, right? Where it's so easy to get banal and so easy to just like fall into tropes because you know, it's so relatable. It's a it's a commonality. It's like the jumping off point for so many other conversations. And, and yet, like, there's so many interesting conventions that we just touch on because there's not too many deep things you can say about beans, I think. And I think, too, uh, when food becomes a, a particular type of food becomes newly trendy oh, yeah. or like written about in a way that it hasn't previously or written about by types of people or in types of outlets that it wasn't being written about, you know, a month or two months earlier, there, there, there also then becomes this kind of like conversation about the conversation of like, I have to acknowledge the things other people are saying about beans now. Yes. If, if that makes sense. So there's the whole sort of like, I, one of the things that I just love, it's like anything that I read about beans will start with some sort of gesture towards 
the soaking debate. The big soaking debate. Controversy or debate. But again, like, because you have to kind of like drum up some sort of like intensity or topical peg, there's like, you know, stop worrying about soaking beans. You idiots. Like you're, you're wasting your life soaking the beans. Don't be precious. Um, you know, look, these are beans. You know, when you put water on them, they turn from stones to pillow. Like just relax. And then there can also be the kind of like, you know, this is how people try to make cooking beans seem too difficult for the regular cook. It's quick and easy. Don't let anyone tell you different. And then someone else is like, no, 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 you're slacking. Like, don't, don't be fooled. The soaking is important. It's just like, I don't know. It, there's, there's so much that's wrapped up in that. And I love the conversation before the conversation. It's kind of like, I feel like it was maybe seven or eight years ago that people started complaining about food bloggers writing long things before, um, posting a recipe oh my god yes and and like a couple of years ago that had become so played out that it there was a sort of like no no no, i love reading that stuff it's fine it just takes 10 seconds to scroll past if you don't like it you know it's free you're not paying for it and and such that like now people seem to like bring it back up sort of obsessively or like with this sense of we, we can't let this question die i have to find a new angle on it so <laughs> I, I don't know. I find that amazing. I find that amazing the way that conversations about the way people write about writing about food sort of spiral out of control with this back and forth and back and forth. Yes. It takes on a pattern, which is so, you know, when you're in it, it's really hard to see. But then you see it, it's like this Groundhog Day sort of thing, right? Where you're just like, wait, I've had, I've had this conversation before. We've had this fight before. We've had this backlash before. You know, and it feels like it's like this illusion of progress, like a uh, like um like a dialectic that might be evolving, but it really is just sort of like spiraling into itself all the time. Yeah, and I think at least for me, when I've seen it or sometimes participated in it, there's sometimes a sense of I don't know unless I had a lot of technical expertise that I'd be able to say something new about how to make these, <laughs> but. I bet I could say something new about the way other people write about making beans if I, you know, wanted to give that a shot. And so I think especially in in food writing, um, there can sometimes be a fear that like if it's not topical, if I haven't added something new, why would anyone read this? And and some of that I think then is also just really connected to the precariousness of trying to make a living as a food writer, which I don't do. That's not a precariousness that I'm subject to, but I mean just in general, this kind of sense of how will I get the clicks? Um, which I don't hold any individual writer responsible for, obviously. But yeah, there's just this sense of like, I got to give him a hook. I got to get him in the door. <laughs> no, I mean, the hook is the symptom, right, of the, this underlying thing. And we all just have to do it because that's kind of what we're stuck in. Um, and like that, the, I think one of the lines in your bean essay is like, beans will fix everything. And to me, <laughs> that brought to mind like all the coronavirus stories, right? Like beans are your coronavirus food or focaccia is your coronavirus food. You know, like everyone had to hit that SEO in the title. Yeah. Yeah. And you could just yeah. kind of, you can just like weave any sort of straw into gold with, with the right search terminology. Yeah. And I think also just like a very, I'm sure a very real sense of like, I'm also freaked out what's a food that I can associate with both kind of fussiness, but that's also simple and can remind me of general ideas about like hardiness, authenticity, earthiness, anything that feels grounding. So so that part of it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and then I think, yeah, just that next thing of like, I think we might be asking and expecting too much of beans. Um, and 
yeah, it's, it's hard, I think. Like, writing about food is, I think it's, it's sort of like a way of trying to, to deal with terror. And it's hard to write about terror, I think. <laughs> Wait, tell me more about this. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately, too, especially because my wife, Grace, has been watching a lot of horror movies lately. And she had watched, there was one that was called, like, Chewing or something, or, like, Swallow or Mouth. Or, I don't know. They all have names like that. And they're all French. <laughs> and they're all about, like, a young vegetarian who goes to college and becomes a cannibal. Oh, raw, like, right? Raw, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, but, like, a lot of them have to do with, like, chewing and swallowing and panic. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'll say is, like, I, I think it feels like w- when it comes to both, like, workers' rights, and the future and climate change, everything about like the systems that we have in our food ways is terrifying. Like everything about factory farming is terrifying. And anybody who tries to think about it for more than a minute, I think uh, often runs into just this absolute sense of like terror, like, oh my God, we've created hell on earth. And I don't know how to think about that. Like there's just these massive pig shit lagoons spreading across the country and these horrifying slaughterhouses where like, People are forced to work under the most inhumane of conditions. And it's also what's making the Arctic turn 100 degrees. And also there's this disease out there that like no one seems invested in actually protecting us from. And also bodies are strange and food spoils so quickly. And it goes from wonderful and beautiful and appetizing to terrifying and dangerous very, very quickly. Um, And then let's also throw a little bit of like, any any sort of aspect of disordered eating on top of it it's just like it's terrifying it's genuinely genuinely terrifying and so then when you look to something like beans to address it it's sort of like okay beans what i need from you is to like usher in a slightly pastoral but also slightly urbanized communist paradise future (laughs) where there's ice at the poles and there's like maybe like 10 pigs die a day, but not like a million, you know, like a a number I can wrap my head around. And they're all killed by like a farmer named Jeff. And he thinks about it very seriously. And there's no pig shit lagoons. And we all eat at a big, long, low table like red wall mice. And like people make money for pulling up radishes and uh, things work. And that's what I need from these beans today. And, um, I don't think beans can do all that. I don't think they can hold all that intensity. <laughs> I have no idea if any of that made sense. No, it makes a lot of sense, actually, especially as a restaurant critic, you know, speaking as a restaurant critic with like acute anxiety and like sadness about everything. It is, you know, it's easy to think of food as a source of comfort. Um, I think that's like the narrative that we that we can kind of slide into, right? Um, right. And there's kind of a limit to that comfort. I think there is so much out there, like you're saying, that is terrifying um, that, yeah, like a, a nice pot of beans just can't do. And I think to pretend that, and it is, I think a lot of it is pretend, at least for me personally, whenever I say that something is comforting, it's kind of an affectation because nothing is truly comforting in this world. <laughs> right. Well, it's comforting in a way that kind of actually keeps the fear going because it's like, okay, well, I feel good now for half an hour. Right. But the problem is that like the pig shit lagoons down in Georgia. They persist. So it's like, this made me feel better, but now I feel guilty about feeling better because I shouldn't feel better. I should stay like hungry and freaked out so that I can like help change things. But where would I start with changing things? That feels too big, but I can eat a bean, but now I feel good and that's wrong. (laughs) 
Yeah, God, uh, it's, it's the grounding part of food is really important, right? And it is the way we like connect to each other and connect to our ancestors and our roots, um, certainly. But I think that there are a lot of other kinds of like we can we can almost go too far, you know, um, and use the food to kind of ignore things. And I think that's the way people have treated food writing for a long time, like consumers mm. um, and even us ourselves, food writers, um, as like this is the kind of the no fly zone for politics or, you know, the sad stuff or the terrifying stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, food can't do all that work, like you're saying. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. I'm Soleho, and I'm back with Daniel Lavery from the Dear Prudence podcast. I did want to ask one last question, which mm-hmm. is about potatoes. Yes. You, you mentioned earlier that you really love like the sort of grounding, simple food. And I know that you have a very strong love of potatoes for similar reasons, I think. Yeah. I mean, potatoes are just delicious. <laughs> and also like it's a big, stupid looking rock. <laughs> And, you know, like you had this tweet that I think I have bookmarked and I look at it sometimes like I look at a little robin's egg that's preserved, like, uh-huh. you know, in a curio cabinet um, about dessert potato, your restaurant idea. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best dumb idea I've ever had. I think so, too. Um, how do you feel about dessert potato now in retrospect? This idea where... It's like it's like pink berry, except it's potatoes instead of frozen yogurt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds absolutely repulsive, but <laughs> it also sounds like just a kind of like weird, kind of dumb, kind of gross, maybe weirdly appetizing if you're like the right kind of high idea that feels like in this country should have taken off. You know, like just some weird restaurant where you go in and they're like, here's a baked potato and like an infinite number of dessert toppings <laughs> you can put on it. We'll just be like. Yeah, all right. I'd spend eight dollars on that. <laughs> would, if this restaurant existed, would you get a dessert potato every day? I mean, I would be the manager and proprietor, right, of dessert potato. So I think I'd have to. Really. <laughs> you have to taste the goods, um, right? You have to taste the goods. You have to. Yeah, I would absolutely like. I would do it. I would be very sick of it. I would hate of it. Okay. Yeah, I just looked it up myself. That's just. Disgusting. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, and I was like, yeah, million dollars on my first day. Absolutely. I think it was very over the top and ridiculous. And um, I'm so glad it doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, even if it doesn't exist. Okay. What would be what's the dessert potato that you're craving right now? If, if you had the option? I, I would want to go for something that would just be weird. That just like I'm going Nutella, whipped cream, cherry preserves. On what potato base? Oh, just a regular white baked potato. Yeah. Nice. I'm going full weird. <laughs> I think I would love like a puree of potato done up kind of like soft serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think sprinkles and ooh, maybe creme anglaise. Well, yeah. I mean, you say that and I'm kind of back on board with the idea. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? It worked. It would also it would be so inconvenient. Like it would almost be the kind of thing that you wouldn't need a container. Like you you think like, oh, I could kind of walk around carrying the baked potato, but that wouldn't work. It'd be way too hot and, and the skin would start to fall apart when you used a fork. So you would you would need like a dumb little paper container and then like a little fork and knife and oh everything about it. 
so inconvenient. I really like no, it. No, you know, I'm imagining someone carrying like a bunch of baked potatoes in like one of those baby slings that you wear on your chest. Ooh, okay. And it's like yeah. warming, but a little lumpy, but like it would conform to your body as you walk. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm back on board. Let's do this. Let's get this going. That would be like the buffet option. Yes. <laughs> Dessert potato buffet. I am in. <laughs> Oh, man. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Danny. As always. As always, my friend. <laughs> I, I send all of my potato feelings to you. So that's all we have for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to Danny Lavery for being in conversation with us. And remember to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and write in any suggestions or comments that you'd like to hear in season two. And go ahead and suggest places for me to eat, too, because I love that. Ooh. We're looking forward to bringing you new episodes on January 25th. Stay safe, be well, happy holidays, and thank you for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.